All right, everyone, welcome back to the eighth episode of the Tough Get Going podcast. Yay, yay! I'm George Gogus, self-described tough guy and mental health clinician who's putting those two things together to bring this show to you. The reason I'm bringing this show to you is I'm here to say you can be strong, you could be tough, but you could still take care of yourself in the right way. The Tough Get Going podcast is proud to bring to you improved audio quality going forward, and it's only going to get better, people. So every episode of the Tough Get Going is special in my heart. But today's episode is really special because of the guests that joins us. So in the Tough Get Going studio today, we have Dr. Jothi Vailakara, who joins us to talk about the brain, CTE, TBI, and even her experience working for an NFL team. We also relate TBI and CTE to recent events in the news media. We also take a tough look at anxiety and we have an icy manly act of kindness on this episode, plus other familiar segments. So just a few things before we get started here. Remember, the Tough Get Going podcast is not intended to treat mental health. It's intended to offer tips, suggestions, interesting interviews, and dry humor. If you're struggling with your mental health, you can go on Psychology Today and find a therapist near you or just Google therapist near me. If this is a mental health emergency, call 911-211 in Connecticut or the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Also, check out the Tough Get Going podcast on Instagram for show updates, tough quotes, cool pictures, and much more. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this tough journey. There's more episodes to come, so stay tuned. Now let's get going. All right, so now we're going to get into my favorite segment of this show, our Manly Acts of Kindness where we're here to show you, you could be strong, you could be tough, you could be manly, but you could still be kind. So for the purpose of this episode, we're taking it back to the Titanic, a terrible tragedy with over 1,500 deaths that unfolded one fateful night on April 14, 1912. So I'll have to say, such an awful incident, yet in an amazing movie. Young Leo running around that boat with that rich girl. Oh my God, and painting her. Oh, and then him on that board at the end, floating away. I have goosebumps right now. Near, far, wherever you are, and I know. All right, deep breath, refocusing here. So as much as I want to reminisce on my experience of the Titanic, this manly act is focusing on someone else's experience, someone who was actually there. So for the purpose of this episode, we are talking about a fifth officer on the Titanic of only 25 years old. So just a little backstory, Harold Lowe was born on November 21st, 1882. He ran away from his home in Barmouth, Wales, when he was 14 years old. The reason he ran away, his dad wanted him to be a businessman, but he wanted to go to sea. So he was out. Harold actually went to school and then joined the Merchant Navy, where there he served along the West African coast as a ship boy. All right. I've always heard of the Merchant Navy, but to be honest, I never really knew what it was. So I looked it up, and basically, it's a bunch of ships traveling together that are transporting goods. So the title speaks for itself. 
And actually falling down that rabbit hole, I found out that you can still join the Merchant Navy today. But education is required and it's actually a serious job where you can make a lot of money. So I looked up the education behind being a Merchant Navy person. And here's some of the curriculum or topics that they cover. Mechanics of fluids, principles of navigation, maritime law, and nautical physics and electronic paper. So moving along, Harold Lowe worked on some other ships until he transferred to the Titanic in 1912. Then on that tragic night on April 14th, a combination of missed communication, elevated speeds, missing binoculars, and pure human arrogance caused the Titanic to scrape an iceberg which caused extensive damage to five of its watertight compartments. So the night of the sinking low was relieved around 8 p.m. and he went to sleep. Somehow, he slept through the collision but was woken 30 minutes later. All right, he's a heavy sleeper, you know. 30 minutes after the incident, Lowe got out there and he really started helping people get into boats and get people off the ship and was really fiercely working to make that happen. So when Lowe actually got off of the ship himself, it is said that he was the only person that returned to try to help survivors. So he's over there getting other people together, trying to get boats together to go save people. So Lowe put his life on the line and he went back there to try to rescue people. Unfortunately, due to very cold water and conditions, he was only able to pull four men into his boat. And the reason it was men, I would assume, is because if we watched a movie, a lot of the women and children were already evacuated from the ship. One of those four men that he pulled out died later that night, but three of them did survive. So we appreciate it, Harold Lowe, for putting your life on the line to try to help others in this manly act of kindness. I give you a lot of credit. You went from a 14-year-old runaway to a manly, kind hero. So thanks. Okay, everyone, so we're going to get into our in-depth topic of this episode. So for the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on a topic that a lot of people might think they know a lot about, and it's definitely talked about a lot, but I figured it was important to get into a little more detail about it. So first, I thought it was important to get into the difference between anxiety and stress. I feel like those two words are used interchangeably a lot, and yeah, there's some similarities, but I think it's important to talk about what the differences are. Okay, so a definition of anxiety is intense, excessive, persistent, and at times irrational worry and fear about everyday situations. Stress is any type of change that causes physical, emotional, or psychological strain. Your body and brain's response to anything that requires attention or action. As I said, I kind of want to get into the difference between the two. I think the key things to point out between them is anxiety is usually caused by irrational or excessive thinking. Stress is more related to actual events that are going on or actual demands for your attention. So here's an example. So working at different agencies over the years, I've come across a lot of clients who had legal involvement or pending court dates. So I figured this would be a good example to explain the differences between stress and anxiety, at least in my opinion. So the fact that the person has a court date is a real thing, they have to be there, and potentially it could go wrong, and they're worried about it or focused on it, that could be considered stress, right? But if the person in their mind sitting there with that blank look on their face going over and over in their head what the outcome is going to be is telling themselves, well, 
It's a small charge, but they're going to make an example out of me. I'm going to go to prison for years. I'm going to lose my job, lose my house, lose my family. It's all over for me. It's like judge, jury, and executioner. And if you live in South Carolina, it's execution by firing squad, which they just made a thing again, which is pretty interesting and gruesome. But anyways... The differences are really anxiety brings in a lot of irrational or excessive thinking about what the event is or what the outcome is going to be versus stress. Well, I have this court date, so I have to be focused and I'm a little worried about it. Another quick example is say that you have a test to take next week. Well, stress related to the test is I need to study. I need to make sure I make it there on time. I need to do so and so to get prepared. Anxiety about the test is I'm a failure, I'm not going to pass, I suck, why would I do this, I'm not prepared, I'm just going to blow it, everything's over, my career's ruined. You see the difference? Okay, so moving along, I just want to say that it's natural to worry or ruminate on certain things. That's kind of how our human brains work. But if it's an ongoing issue and it affects you daily and you're just filled with dread and that feeling overall, it may be diagnosable anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder or GAD. So there's some key differences between regular worry and GAD or generalized anxiety disorder. The first one is excessive thinking, right? Thinking about it all day long, morning to night, always popping into your head, just constant, the hamster wheel I like to call it. It's intrusive, right? So the worry is intrusive. So you're just sitting at work, you're focusing on writing an email, and all of a sudden, boom, the stress from next week's court date comes in, or you know what might happen in the future, or whatever. It's persistent, right? Keeps going. Days, weeks, even months, maybe. You just got this feeling of dread overall, just worrying all the time. And it's disruptive, right? It interferes with you performing your usual routine, socializing, doing a good job at work, spending time with your kids, you know, disruptive to your natural kind of balance of life. All right, so now we're going to get into the signs and symptoms of GAD or generalized anxiety disorders. So these are broken into three main categories, emotional, behavioral, and physical signs and or symptoms. So let's start with emotional. Some of the signs or symptoms are constant worry, feeling you can't control it, just completely uncontrollable. This anxiety is running my life versus me running my own. Intrusive thoughts, right? popping in your head when you don't want them, not the appropriate time, or just constantly. The inability to deal with uncertainty. Hey, what do you want to eat for dinner? Uh, I don't know. I, uh, you pick. You pick! Urgh! And just an overall emotional feeling of dread or apprehension. Just tense, feeling tense, always like on edge. Something's going to happen. Always in that state of like hypervigilance. So as far as behavioral signs or symptoms, some of those are you can't relax or sit still. It's hard to be quiet and be by yourself. You can't focus or concentrate. Memory problems maybe, just hard time completing tasks. And avoiding responsibilities or situations. You know, it's just too much to deal with right now. I feel like crap. I'm anxious. I just can't deal with that stuff right now and there's some physical signs or symptoms tense muscles as you people can see that's been a theme with certain mental health stuff here trouble sleeping falling or staying asleep feeling edgy gi issues racing heart shallow breathing feeling clammy headaches a lot of those physical signs all right so let's talk a little bit about how to help again i'm always going to say this people work with a therapist i actually work with a lot of clients who struggle with anxiety 
And there's way more detailed and helpful ways that you can get into to start actually doing these things with the therapist. As I always say, these are just tips and suggestions. To execute them, it's best to do it with a professional person. So the next tip or suggestion of how to potentially help is connect to others, right? Another theme that we've been seeing lately. Build trusted supports in your life, people you can rely on, people you can depend on, and just kind of try to be with them. Just talking to someone is helpful even if you're not getting the best solutions. And one important thing to note when we're talking about connecting to others is also know your limits and know who to avoid. I mean, I hate to call them out right here, but we all have those people in our lives who are super anxious all the time, and it tends to affect us, right? Sometimes that energy affects us. So if you're feeling anxious, it's probably best, at least for the short term, to avoid or minimize your contact with that person. All right, so the next tip or suggestion is mindful techniques to quickly calm yourself down. So I'll have to say there's different schools of thought on how to deal with anxiety. Some people say you need to experience it in the moment. I agree that you can't avoid your anxiety, but I think experiencing in the moment can go wrong for some people. So it's best to use skills in order to calm yourself down first and then deal with the anxious thoughts. It actually brings up a quote from John Kabat-Zinn, who is a big person in the mindfulness field. So his quote is, it is not that mindfulness is the answer to all of life's problems. Rather, it is that all life's problems can be seen more clearly through the lens of a clear mind. So again, you're not avoiding your problems. You're using mindful skills to calm yourself down and then deal with it from a rational, cool, and calm place. All right, so some mindful skills and really just listen to any of my previous episodes because I pretty much talk about one in each of them. But just a general list is breathing, grounding techniques, crafts, and meditation. Listen to some prior episodes to find other techniques to be mindful. All right, so the next one is challenge those thoughts, right? So I'm going to refer everyone back to episode four for my coping skill of the day that talks more about this. When we have a thought pop into our mind, especially an anxious thought, we tend to kind of focus on proving that thought right. Why would this totally fictional or made up thought pop into my head? It must be real. So what you want to be doing when you're challenging these thoughts is instead of putting all of our energy into telling ourselves the thought is true, we kind of switch it up a little bit and we start breaking down the validity of the thought that we're having. Well, if I'm telling myself I'm a loser, I'm never going to amount to anything. How did I graduate from college? Or And, you know, it's hard to do that in the moment. That's why I'm stressing working with a therapist and using mindfulness techniques. But yes, challenge those thoughts. So writing is a great way to deal with anxiety. Journaling, you don't have to write about anything specific. Just start writing about how you're feeling. Writing helps you be focused, detailed. You can do it in a calm way. And you can put your thoughts in order. So the next tip or suggestion is to plan ahead. So I've told all you people my mountain lion story, but I'm going to say it again real quickly just because it's one of my favorite stories. So I went to this training on mindfulness or meditation. It was at our local airport's hotel. The guy that was doing the training, I'm pretty sure his name was Dr. Richard Bachel. But the first thing that surprised us about him is he looked about 60, but he told us his age of 86, and all of our minds were blown. He said one of the secrets to a healthy life was running, so he ran most of his life. As he got older, he couldn't run anymore. He actually lived in Nebraska, so when he couldn't run, he started riding his bike around the reservoir. See, one thing in Nebraska that's different from Connecticut, and some people would debate this and say that they are present, but Nebraska has mountain lions. So he was explaining how 
when he first started going to the reservoir to ride his bike, he was scared and he wasn't enjoying his experience because he was afraid that a mountain lion was going to attack him. He was always looking over his shoulder and kind of not focusing on his ride and not, just not really enjoying the experience mindfully. But then one day he decided, well, why don't I make a plan of how to deal with this mountain lion? So he actually came up with a pretty good plan. If a mountain lion comes to attack me, I'm going to lay on the ground and I'm going to hold my bike over my chest area as like a shield to keep it from swiping me. So the moral of this story is in the future, he was aware that there was mountain lions around. However, he wasn't actively searching for a way to deal with them. That piece of the anxiety puzzle was taken out and he had a better experience. I know that life is unpredictable and people can't plan for everything, but people can plan to be in situations that cause anxiety and figure out a way how to deal with it in the moment. Again, your mountain lion is anxiety. So if you can find a way how to deal with panic or anxiety, it might overall give you some relief. And the last tip or suggestion is lifestyle changes. So try to sleep the right amount, limit your caffeine, alcohol, and cigarettes, and try to eat right. I've mentioned this a few times. What you put into your body definitely affects your mood. All right, so that's going to wrap up our in-depth topic on anxiety. We started out by defining what anxiety and stress is and talking a little bit about the differences between them. We kind of talked about what diagnosable anxiety could be. We went over signs and symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder, and we went over some tips and suggestions on how to help. Number one, as always, work with a therapist. Number two, connect with others. Number three, mindful techniques. Number four, challenge those thoughts. Number five, writing. Number six, plan ahead of how to deal with anxious situations or your anxiety mountain lion. And number seven, lifestyle changes. All right, everyone, I hope that was helpful. I appreciate you joining us for another in-depth topic. On this episode, we took a tough look at anxiety. Okay, everyone, now we're going to get into our WTF mental health moment. What the... Okay, so last episode I talked about metrazole-induced seizures. Check out the last episode, episode 7 if you haven't already, because metrazole-induced seizures were basically the precursor to what I'm going to talk about today. So today's topic is electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. It's actually a practice that is still used today, so that adds a whole nother element to this what the moment. So, as I said, ECT is based on the same principles as metrodol-induced seizures, except these seizures are brought on by electrical pulses. So, one interesting thing about metrazole is it actually took several minutes for someone to start having the seizure, and they found that when, when they gave people the injection, they started freaking out because it took so long just anticipating it. So, ECT actually induced the seizures much more quickly. So ECT was created by a team of Italian physicians led by Ugo Serletti and Lucio Bini. So sadly, they used animals as test dummies during this. And at first, they started putting the electrical current through most of the body. They actually found that that led to cardiac arrest. So they decided to tweak it a little bit and they focused it cranially. So in 1938, the first human trial was done on a 39-year-old disorganized man who was found wandering at a train station in Rome. What? They just snatched him up when he was wandering and started zapping him? So anyways, the first test on him was 0.2 seconds with 110 volts, which successfully induced the seizure. They zapped him 10 more times during the course of his hospital stay or kidnapping. 
and they claimed it reduced his psychosis. So in 1940, ECT spread through Europe and North America. It was proven to be effective for a variety of neurological and psychiatric conditions, including major depression and other psychosis. In 1944, Vladimir T. Liberson shortened the stimulus duration, which reduced post-procedure side effects, including aphasia, which is the loss of the ability to understand or express speech, cognitive blunting, and the recovery time. In 1952, Holmberg and Thesleff came up with anesthetized, that's a hard word, ECT, which further improved patient comfort during the treatment. So as I said earlier, ECT is still used today. I mentioned in my first episode that I worked at a psychiatric hospital for a time, and some patients were actually sent out to a reputable hospital to receive ECT treatment. Now, it was only done sparingly and as last resort, and actually, just for your information, a probate court judge had to approve the treatment. The psychiatrist on the unit had to prove to the court that there's no other techniques that could be helpful and that ECT is medically necessary, and then the judge either signs off on it or doesn't. And some people who were being sent to ECT actually had conservators of person or estate, and if people don't know about that, basically a court determines that someone can't care for themselves either physically, medically, financially, or psychiatrically. So the court appoints someone, usually a lawyer, who can make those decisions for on the person's behalf. There is a lot of research that says that ECT is helpful if used sparingly. So thanks everyone. This has been another WTF mental health moment. What the... All right, everyone, so now we're going to get into the interview of this episode. So today in the Tough Get Going studio, I have a guest that I'm just honored and super excited to bring to everyone, but I appreciate all of my guests equally. So today in the Tough Get Going studio, we have Dr. Jyothi Vailakara. Dr. Vailakara, thank you for coming to the studio today. Thank you for having me, Judge. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule for us. Dr. Vailakara is a neuropsychologist, and she's going to talk a little bit about her experience. Now, this is fascinating stuff, people, and like I said, we're definitely honored to have her here today. But first, before we get into that, Jyothi, I know we worked together before, so I, I know a little something about your background, but you are from India, and you're the perfect guest for this show for a couple reasons. Number one, you're brilliant. Number two, you're also a badass, too. So is it true that you're part of the warrior caste? Yes, that is the matriarchal caste system that I come from. Just just to make it really clear, I mean, we are not, I don't follow the caste system right now, at least psychologically, I don't think about myself in terms of that. But yes, that is where I come from. That's super fascinating. And like I said, hardcore. And, you know, I, we're not promoting it here, right? Because I know we've talked about your issues with the caste system. But, you know, I figured it was good to mention or interesting to mention to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, George. Yes. Um, yeah, even though, I mean, that's what I was born into. So I'm not trying to disown it. But at the same time, I do try to actively work against differentiating people based on caste. That's great. You know, she is a strong advocate and don't mess with her, people. Don't mess with her. For those of you who don't know, the caste system is basically a regulated social community where people are born into it. And depending on which caste you're born into, 
determines certain things like what your occupation can be, who you can marry, and basically it is a social hierarchy which can be discriminatory. All right, so moving on a little bit, uh, Jothi, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the field of neuropsychology? Um, before I do that, uh, thank you, George, for inviting me. I always enjoyed working with you. I think you are a brilliant social worker who uh, are destined to go places. I can see that. Having said that, and also you didn't pay me for this. Just wanted to make sure your audience hear that as well. And we talked about this before, you know, helping out a friend is, you know, is priceless. So karma, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So talking about neuropsychology, neuropsychology is quite a, a huge field. I will just talk about the pertinent factors of what neuropsychology might be helpful to your audience, at least. It's um, all looking into the brain behavior relationships. Uh, we look at how an individual is behaving or not behaving and how that pertains to their brain functioning. So there are neuropsychological assessments that I do, which are mostly paper and pencil tests, non-invasive, but they actually do a pretty good job, uh, sometimes even better than some of the imaging um, when it comes to really having a more deeper understanding as to how the so-called functional domains of the brain work. That is the way I look at it. And that has worked pretty well over the last uh, decade and a half for me. Sounds fascinating. And can you tell us a little about like what specific issues or disorders someone might be experiencing that would lead them to need to be assessed by a neuropsychologist? That again would be quite a broad, broad arena. But um, going from the one end of the spectrum, the more extreme end of the spectrum, it would be something like dementias. Neuropsychological assessments gets to be quite useful in collaboration with imaging, etc., etc., to have a bit more of a handle on getting to a diagnosis of dementia. But having said that, I also need to add a disclaimer that dementias cannot be fully diagnosed until at autopsy. So I don't want to give the sense that we can actually have a full diagnosis, but a probable diagnosis the way I use in my own assessments had turned out to be true for the most part. And then it can go to the other end of the spectrum, which might be individuals, sometimes college-age kids or even younger, having attentional issues, focus concentration issues, for which they feel like uh, they need to rule out ADHD, as an example, and then everything in between as well. There are several, several diagnoses that can be part of the spectrum that neuropsychological assessments can be helpful for, including TBIs, traumatic brain injury. Okay, and I actually have a question about that a little later in this interview. Um, kind of going back a little bit to not knowing exactly what's going on until having an autopsy. Can you tell us a little bit about what people are looking for in autopsies? Like what's the difference between that and what they can see in the imaging that you mentioned? Just using one example of Alzheimer's dementia, you know, they look for tau protein. There are certain kind of plaques, the way we call it, the plaques and tangles that you can find in the brain. The most simplistic way of defining it would be like having the teeth tartar, you know, the, those kinds of plaques that form between your teeth. That is exactly what we find in, uh, in the brain on autopsy. There's an, quite an entangled mess of uh, plaques and tangles. Well, I really had no idea plaque kind of like your teeth. So this might sound like a silly question, but, you know, usually people develop plaque between their teeth from not flossing or not cleaning their teeth properly. Does plaque form in your brain by like certain areas of the brain not being used or not functioning correctly? 
That's actually a very fascinating question. That's a brilliant question, actually. And I've not thought about it in those terms, comparing the teeth with the brain, uh, although we use that analogy quite a bit. Um, but actually, that does make sense. Uh, I don't think we have reached, or maybe there's research out there that I'm not aware of. We are making trends. We're making some great trends when it comes to understanding dementias, but I don't think we have reached that point yet. And remember who said that first, people. You know, I know we did this interview for a reason. We'll be working together in the future. <laughs> I would love to, George. And for any researchers out there who are interested in hearing more about my brain plaque theory, please email me, George, at the Podcast at gmail.com if you want to come on the show and talk more about it. So kind of going back a little bit more, and of course, you know, I know... I know by talking to you when we worked together previously that these evaluations that you do, you said they're paper and pencil, they can take hours and hours. Can you quickly tell us a little bit about what types of things you're actually doing in that evaluation? Yeah, that um, I can answer a lot better than um, in our field when it comes to the brain. The brain is such a complex organ. That's why, I mean, with my students, I always tell them, I mean, you know, not to look at it too concretely, but when you're in training, you have not a lot of choice, but looking at the brain concretely in terms of lobes, you know, the frontal, the occipital, the parietal, and the, the temporal lobes, uh, those are the primary ones, and the cerebellum. That makes sense when you're in training, but as you move further along in the field, very important to look at the brain in terms of the functional domains that I was mentioning earlier. So that is what I actually look for. When it comes to the interview of the person whom I'm actually assessing, that gives me more than 50% of the information I'm looking for, even before I start the testing. And the testing usually zeros in on the so-called functional domains. One is memory, one is executive functioning, pretty much um, reading between the lines kind of phenomenon that the frontal lobe uh, deals with. Then you have language, you have all kinds of expressive receptive speech deficits, visual changes. All of these functional areas, pretty much all the functional areas that we use as a human being are assessed um, when it comes to a comprehensive neuropsychological assessment. That's a little bit above me, but it seems like you're saying that you do specific tests. A lot of them are paper and pencil tests to kind of test those different functional domains, as you put it, to figure out what the deal is. So I wanted to kind of move on to something that you mentioned. So there's a couple things or specific disorders that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, probably because they're kind of close to home or near and dear to me or something that I'm familiar with, at least in seeing how it can affect people. So the first thing is TBI, you know, being a military veteran, I know a lot of veterans are affected by TBI, a blast from a bomb or something like that, or an injury in combat. And the other one is CTE. You know, there's been a lot of examples. I hate to use celebrities or famous people as the example because I know your day-to-day people are also struggling with these types of disorders. Some of the ones that have been in the media lately is of course Aaron Hernandez and you know there's been some wrestlers who have done terrible things. Chris Benoit is an example of that who committed that horrible act towards his family and himself which people attributed to repeated head injuries which kind of comes with the territory in wrestling as well as other contact sports. But if anyone knows anything about Chris Benoit, his finishing move was literally jumping off the top rope, diving with his head, headbutting the person on the ground, flying through the air head first, so it makes sense that head injuries were in the picture. So quickly, can you tell us, you know, are there similarities between TBIs and CTE, or are they different? Can you explain a little more about those? Actually, I'm glad that you bring in CTE, even though 
in the general media it seems like more of a recent phenomenon there's been a lot of work that has been going on in the research area for years and years even when i was in graduate school at nova southeastern this was in fort lauderdale we had the miami dolphins housed in our own campus and uh, we used to do some uh, work with the players um, i just came in from india at the time i had no idea and even now i'm not the biggest i i love certain sports but i'm sorry that i'm you know i don't follow the nfl as closely but i did um I did work with some of the NFL players. I did work with the Miami Dolphins team as well with my mentor Dr. Burns who was very much instrumental one of the trendsetters in the field I should say. And I'm talking about almost 15 20 years ago, 18 years ago at least. Talking about again as usual I say track a little bit uh, but coming back to your earlier question about CT and TBI um CT is part of TBI traumatic brain injury is a much more of a general umbrella that houses all of the different forms of brain injuries including the uh, CTEs um but there's a bit of a difference that research is also showing us the way especially with veterans and I know you as a veteran you know this much better than I do um but uh, especially with combat veterans who have been in the midst of ied explosions for example the kind of impact on the brain seems to be a little different from the typical traumatic brain injury that we see but i want to go back to what you were talking about um the cts and the celebrities um actually it's not a bad idea to bring in um you know when you have somebody unfortunately everyone suffers it the same way whoever goes through significant cte but uh, the celebrities actually does shed more of a light on this issue than the average person out there so that way it's actually very much helpful to the field and the research um so with concussive traumatic encephalopathy it doesn't happen as widely as people think it's n- let me rephrase this um it doesn't happen with just a few blows to the head is what i'm trying to say that's why i had to mention the ied explosions the other piece of trauma to the brain as well but with um excessive blows to the brain uh we still haven't reached the point where we understand how many blows is required to really move into a fully raging cte for somebody those celebrities that you mentioned as an example uh but those are the two individuals who already have very much established cte's it does take more than a few of uh, significant blows to the brain for the brain to get into that mode and unfortunately we have uh, although that is also just like other dementias you need an autopsy to fully confirm this but or the impact of the ct on the brain but i think we do have enough evidence as of now to tell us that cts have a higher probability of moving on to the dementia spectrum so it can develop into more serious dementias okay wow so lots of interesting things that you're saying the first thing that i wanted to kind of highlight is I guess CTE is something that's recently kind of had the spotlight on it as far as the media and it's interesting to me to know that there's been research on it going on for years now and you know it's not exactly a new phenomenon Exactly. Yes. And I don't know how long it has been going on even before I got exposed to it but like I said not even knowing much about the NFL when I just um came into this country into the US uh, in the 90s I actually got thrown into CTEs right away so I'm assuming it must have been discussed in research circles even longer than that Interesting I'm glad that someone was out there thinking about it when I wasn't apparently All right Jyothi so I wanted to bring up another thing that you just mentioned the idea that it takes multiple blows to develop CTE or other certain brain injuries so it's not just a one time thing can you talk more about that Oh of course um 
with CTEs, I was I meant that in terms of contact sports. So it depends on the the gravity of the injury and also the frequency of the blows. Somebody who comes to mind is Muhammad Ali. I mean, from the longest time back, I mean, we all know what happened with his brain because he had a very much, uh, his style of operation was taking the maximum number of punches and it did a number to his brain. So he might be one of the oldest case studies we have on CTE, probably. Um, so that's what I meant by um, multiple blows to the brain. I appreciate you clarifying that and giving us more information. So another thing I wanted to talk about is I've actually watched a couple documentaries on CTE. And I know one thing, and I know you said that it's kind of the research has kind of been under wraps. I know one thing the NFL does is they try to kind of discredit the information or hire certain doctors that, you know, go with the information that they're trying to put out there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, that's actually a very loaded question, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I have no qualms answering it, right? I mean, you know me, George. Um, I, if you're asking for evidence right now, I don't have any in my hands. But through the years, one thing um, I have noticed just being an observer, especially after what I talked about um, almost um, two decades ago, uh, being in graduate school and um, seeing how we have been involved in this process and how uh, little we have moved in the right direction. Is that a possibility? I do think it is. Well, I appreciate you talking more about that. And I know it was a loaded question, so I apologize for asking it. It's just something I thought was really interesting because there were certain doctors or scientists that were presenting this information and then the NFL had other ones that were disputing it saying, eh, it's not really proven that that's causing it. So it's definitely a topic of interest. Um, if I have to take an informed guess, like I said earlier, yes. I would think that um, I would err on the side of there has been some attempts at maybe discrediting, but definitely putting a lid on some of the research information that has been out there for the longest time. I appreciate your honesty. And we're just talking here, people. You know, I don't want the NFL coming after me. I already got Jared Jeweler from Episode 7 coming after me. The NFL is much scarier. You can't touch that NFL money. But moving along, another controversial and loaded question that I'm going to ask you is, I know, you know, the talk about CTE and other brain injuries has discouraged a lot of parents from letting their kids play football. What would you say to that? Just kidding. I'm not actually going to ask you to answer that question. I don't want to put you on the spot that much. I want to stay friends, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'm sure I know a lot of parents who wouldn't be happy if I tried to answer that question. So, <laughs> so moving along. Can you tell us a little bit about how CTE actually affects the functioning of the brain or a few of the symptoms that it can cause in people? Um, that is something that we do have some good solid research on. First of all, CTE, it's, it's no surprise. The brain is actually quite um, well protected within the cranium and the skull. But having said that, uh, once you have the breach happened, um, it can be quite a downhill process for the brain. And one of the first areas that usually gets impacted probably because it's such a vital part of the brain and also because it's might be a bit on the delicate side i believe at least is the frontal lobe and that is the way i like to call it the pilot of the brain 
you know, it's um, what is essential for us um, to read between the lines, to understand the gist of the message rather than what you're reading, what you're seeing. And that area of the brain gets compromised. And let me also explain what that means. Um, when the frontal lobe gets compromised, there are a lot of behavioral disturbances that comes through. And some of the celebrity examples that you used as well as other examples around on CTEs, um, confirmed CTEs, we see that. We see a major personality change. People talk about these individuals having major changes in personality, aggression, increase in aggression, increase in agitation, increase suicidal risk. But also on a cognitive end, there is memory difficulties and definitely the executive functioning difficulties of the frontal lobe where you cannot make rational decisions. And that, as you know, can actually set off downslide for the brain. And a lot of cases of CTEs, there is um, ample evidence of um, that being linked to even self-harm behaviors and aggression to others. Interesting. I really appreciate you going through all of that stuff. It actually answers like a personal question that I had as, you know, can CTE really explain the behaviors of certain people like Aaron Hernandez or Chris Benoit? And it seems like you're saying, yes, it can definitely be the cause of those sort of impulsive type of behaviors. As you mentioned, it affects the frontal lobe, which can certainly have an impact on you making rational decisions. I want to actually add a disclaimer that I haven't looked at the autopsy results of these individuals. So I don't want to kind of have a definitive answer. But like I said earlier, since CTEs is still an area where research is pointing in the right direction, but we still need a lot more evidence. But yes, to answer your question, there's enough solid evidence that uh, these individuals that you mentioned have confirmed CTEs after the autopsy and some of the behaviors and some of the parallels of their uh, downslide when it comes to behavioral changes, personality changes, memory changes, etc, etc. If you put the two together, sounds like there is, um, if I have to take an informed guess, uh, there are some correlations that are jumping out. Okay, I appreciate you clarifying that as well. And it's my fault for speaking in definites, you know, that's not a good thing. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> So, you know, the last question I have for you is, are there any effective treatment approaches to either TBI or more specifically CTE? Actually, that is still an area that is in progress. Uh, but having said that, let me also start off by saying there's so many different variations of CTE. I don't think I have addressed the one with combat veterans, so maybe I did. I might be forgetting, but um, um, that might be very different uh, from how you would actually handle uh, CTs as a result of contact sports, etc. I mean, there, there are some commonalities for sure, but there are also some differences depending on the demographic you are treating. So I wanted to have that out there first before answering your question. And um, just like with every other form of brain injury, there are neurorehabilitative processes that I use in my own practice where you can actually, just using memory as an example, because I always add this disclaimer, which I didn't do in this podcast, that brain is such a complex organ. It takes a few lifetimes to understand it. Uh, so even though I have uh, quite a few years of extensive training in it, I don't think I have uh, reached the end of my understanding as to what the brain can do and what it cannot do. So it's still a work in progress, at least in my office it is. But I have found that some uh, treatment interventions like using mnemonic activities, enhancing memory, etc., etc., does work. It is. Um, it has a lot to do with rote repetitive learning, which even a damaged or so-called damaged or traumatized brain still retains a lot of new learning capacity. So we have a lot of avenues to be exploring in order to not exactly bring the ba brain back to where it was before the injury, but definitely come a long way. 
Well, I'm glad to know that there is some hope out there, that there are some things that can help improve the quality of life of people who are struggling with these certain injuries, and that it's an evolving process, that people are still working on it and trying to figure this out. And I understand that it's difficult to say how to treat it, specifically if you're not looking at one person or one case. The brain is very complicated. And organ, right? Is the brain an organ? Uh, in my eyes, yes, it is. <laughs> I consider it the most vital organ. <laughs> All right. Seems like it. It seems like it. All right. So, Dr. Jyothi Vailakara, I really appreciate you taking the time to come to the studio today and engage in this fascinating conversation. Thank you, George. It's my pleasure. And also, you made it really easy for me. Well, I'm glad that you came. And like I said, you were able to take the time out. I, this is a very fascinating conversation. And I think people listening to the show will really appreciate to hear a little bit more in depth about these disorders that have been in the media, but maybe not explained fully. Thanks for having me, George. Anytime. I really hope you can come back sometime. Of course. If you invite me, I'll be back here. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, everyone, now we're going to get into our coping skill of the day. So today's coping skill of the day is brought to us by Charter Oak Therapeutic Services, a private practice that I'm a co-owner of and a clinician at. Charter Oak is located in Woolkit, Connecticut, and is currently accepting clients for both in-person and telehealth appointments. Please call 860-863-6342 or email hello at charteroaktherapy.com to talk more about scheduling an appointment. All right, so for the purpose of the coping skill of the day, we're going to talk about active listening. So some people call it assertive listening, but they're basically two of the same thing. Active listening is a way to improve your communication and your relationships. You know, we all know those people, and likely we've been those people, who aren't really paying attention to what the other person is saying they're just thinking of their response or the rebuttal and not really listening. So we're going to try to work on that to, like I said, improve our communication with other people and potentially our relationships. So some of the goals of active listening are being neutral and non-judgmental, patient, giving verbal and non-verbal feedback, asking questions, reflecting back what is said, and clarifying and summarizing. So quickly, let's get into tips of how to reach those goals. The first, different types of body language. Eye contact, right? Looking at the person when they're speaking, leaning in towards them, and kind of sometimes even nodding to show them, yes, I'm following you, I'm with you here. Just a tip of what not to do, don't fold your arms because that tells people I'm closed off. You know, keep an open chest, your arms apart. It says, hey, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm engaged in this. So the next tip is to paraphrase what was said. Don't offer your opinion, at least not yet. Say something like, so you're saying this or you mean this just to give the person the idea that I'm following you and I want to know more about this. Another tip is don't interrupt. Even give it a couple seconds before you respond once the other person stops. The next tip is keep your nonverbal communication in mind as well. Your tone of voice, don't roll your eyes, just kind of pay attention to that stuff. The next tip or suggestion is to ask clarifying questions. When you say this, do you mean this or do you mean that? You know, again, showing the person that I'm listening to you, I'm following you, and it helps you pay attention when you're asking questions. Don't change the subject. Be patient and go through the conversation and let it unfold naturally. 
invalidate the person. Yeah, that does sound tough or that sucks. And another weird tip or suggestion is to watch interviews or certain things to see examples of people who are actively listening. All right, so that's going to end our coping skill of the day. It was a quick one today. We talked about active listening. You know, it's ways to improve your communication and relationships. We talked about the goals of active listening and tips of how to reach those goals, including eye contact, paraphrasing, don't interrupt, keep your nonverbal cues in mind, ask clarifying questions, don't change the subject, validate the person that's speaking, and maybe watch some interviews to get ideas of what active listening really is. All right, everyone, I appreciate you listening to this coping skill of the day. And again, this coping skill of the day is brought to you by Charter Oak Therapeutic Services, located in Woolkit, Connecticut. Call 860-863-6342 or email securely at hello at charteroaktherapy.com. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone, that's actually going to bring a close to the eighth episode of the Tough Get Going podcast. My name is George Gogus, and I appreciate everyone joining us on this tough journey today. I want to thank our very prestigious guests for coming on the show and everyone else's contributions. So just a couple things before we end. The Tough Get Going podcast is not intended to treat mental health issues. It's intended to offer tips, suggestions, interesting interviews, and dry humor. You should seek out help for yourself by going on Psychology Today and finding a therapist near you or Googling therapists near me. If this is a mental health emergency, call 911, 211, or 911 in Connecticut or visit your local emergency room. You can also call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. And last, if you're interested in sponsoring one of our segments or maybe want to come on the show yourself to promote yourself or your business, email me, George, at the Tough Get Going Podcast at gmail.com. All right, everyone. So there's more episodes to come. We are just getting started here. Make sure you take care of yourselves. Be careful out there. But most of all, stay tough. Now, Charlie Mike, or continue the mission. Now, let's get going.